Um, next up, Stomp, you're yeah, more fear-mongering with this. So um, rumors of a big cat sighting at Cannon Stomp. I don't know anything about this. So this is just, this is a crazy local towny thing going on. It is. And this is pure rumor and based upon one single message that was sent over. But apparently a uh, night groomer at Cannon has been stalked by a big cat. And don't ask me what a big cat is. <coughs> It could be whatever. I'm not sure what a big cat would mean. The woman over 45, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a possibility. Uh, so it was yeah, a PG rating. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're explicit now, so we can say that. So that's okay. Yes. studio in the great state of new hampshire welcome to the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of new hampshire here are your hosts mike and stump So welcome to episode 91 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. Stomp. Just um, one thing that I wanted to get because I, I didn't write this down and I don't want to forget. Thanks to some random person on social media, but they had just posted a reminder about Lincoln Woods. Yeah. Do you remember like last year we had talked about how there's a potential for Lincoln Woods to get shut down? No, I did not hear that. No, this is news for me. You remember nope. that? Yeah, there's like an 800-foot section of trail uh, in Lincoln Woods. I, don't, I think it's after the Osceola cutoff, Osseo cutoff. I think you get into Lincoln Woods parking lot, you head down to the Osseo Trail, and then a little bit past that, there's an 800-foot section, which I think is going to require about a half a mile worth of trail closure. Okay. So what that basically means is that you won't be able to access that section of the trail. And there's a, there's basically like a permit going through right now. And I t- just took a look at the latest update on the f- fishing game of the forest service website. Wow. And it says that they are, um, they're going to have like a decision document out in April. So okay. if they green light this project, then that section of Lincoln woods will be shut down. So like if you're going to do a Pemi loop or you're going to be doing like a Bond Zealand Traverse or something. Like we talked about this maybe about a year ago. And at the time they were like, we're not doing it in the summer of 2022, so don't worry about it. But it just like, I saw somebody posting about it because they were planning a Pemi loop. And it's just something people, listeners should just be aware of is that this summer, if they approve this project, then you're talking like a half a mile of Lincoln Woods being shut down. And I don't think there's any way around it. Like they're not going to let you just like, bushwhack out in the woods to, to bypass it. So, hmm. um, 
should make it should be interesting because I what I suspect is going to happen is if the water gauges are pretty low, people may actually try to do that sort of that that Pemi River crossing up sure. off of um, yep. um, whatever that camp is. There it gets kind of low, and it's it's it, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily, but it is passable sometimes. And then you get over sometimes. to the what is that the East Branch Trail or something? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was just pulling that up now. So basically, it would if you're doing a Pemi loop, it would expand your Pemi loop significantly <laughs> well in yeah a sense. Either that, you'd have to either cross the river to get to lincoln woods or you would have to turn around yeah yeah you'd have to go west and grab other trails that come out the opposite side of the uh yeah. the river at yeah, lincoln woods exactly that's intense I, i'm yeah, surprised i had not heard about this i won't we stop we talked about it on the show multiple times you're not listening yeah yeah probably <laughs> I'm uh, I'm notorious for not listening on the show, but no, uh, it was like a year ago. Now, so. is this part of the parcel of monetary money that's coming in to fix like uh, falling waters and other places, or is this something totally different? No, this is a separate project. So it's called the Lincoln Woods Trail Reconstruction, and there's a project list on the fee, uh, the the Forest Service website that I will link to in the show notes so you can take a look at sort of the project status. So yeah. I think originally um, they had put out a notice of in, in initiation in December of 2021. And then the next milestone right now is something called the Forest Planned Amendment Decision Document, yeah. which will be coming out in April. So I don't know if that means that if that document is finalized and they approve it, then it'll be a green light for summer of 2023 or whether or not it may get pushed out again. But the current status of the project is under analysis. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so we shall see. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. We shall see. So, okay. Um, okay. It should make for some interesting uh, issues anyway. But on uh, the yeah. next thing stomp is we got a um, shout out to listener Steffi who Steffi sent Barry. us an article. Yeah, yeah. So, do you know this person? She's a listener and uh, messages us quite a bit and okay. uh, sends us interesting articles. And this is a good one. All right. Why don't you talk about what she sent us? Well, basically, the article covers this this fear mongering that uh, or psychological torture that northbound AT through hikers experience when they're heading towards the whites. You know, apparently there was just a lot of naysaying about, you know, oh my God the whites are going to kill you. They're going to destroy you and everything else. And by the time you get to the whites, you're in this, this hell place of a, a psychological place. And the point of the article is that, uh, you know, the, the, the naysayers and all the horror stories are not actually accurate and that the whites are completely doable. If you limit the nonsense that people are saying, you avoid the grifters and you pick solid trail family members and uh, do common sense things. Like just prepare yourself with what's coming up on the trails and listen to the rangers, listen to the stewards, and uh, you can get through the whites without a problem. So it was, it's a really interesting article and uh, it's worth a read. And uh, thank you, Steffi, for sending it to us. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot from people like the, the through hikers, they'll, they'll get, you know, they start off the through hike and everyone tells them like, oh, it doesn't get real until you get to the whites. But I feel like if you started in Georgia and then you get all this way, what is it like probably 1500 miles, then you know, you've, you've, you've earned your hiking shoes. You're ready for the whites. I would think so. Yeah, I would think so too, for sure. 
but the grifter thing was interesting as well. I mean, the, the article makes note of a particular uh, hostel that used, in this writer's opinion, used fear to sign up for um, a slack pack adventure where they would take care of the the drop off and pick up and whatever else. So uh, that was an interesting really? part of the article that. I had not heard of as a different angle. So people are grifting on people's fear on certain parts of the whites. Like, hmm, that might deserve a little more exploration. Yeah, the AT's funny. Like, I feel like, and and we have Jack and 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 Ben here with us, so they may chime in on this as well. But um, and we'll introduce them in a little while. But I do feel like there's like a mix of like, there's probably like some people like drivers and hostels and things like that that do take advantage of the hikers but then i think that there's a lot of hikers that will look at anybody who has set up a business around supporting the through hikers as a as a like a grifter and they'll look at them suspiciously so it could be that this hostel was legitimately like hey you know it's we're offering an opportunity for you to slack pack to make your life easier and the intention may be good but the the way they took it may have been bad so who knows yep, it's true. probably the truth is in in the middle somewhere yeah they so, may have meant well but yeah if you're a through hiker and you're listening um by the time you get to smarts and cube and musalai like you're ready to go like you have to be i can't imagine anybody's not ready to go if they've done that much mileage under them mm-hmm. yeah i agree so yeah, but speaking of fear mongering jack i'll actually throw this to you and get your opinion we've got a huge um, like f- wave of cold weather coming in on Friday, Saturday. So the conventional wisdom is stay home, don't hike. But I don't know if you sort of agree with that, or if you're of the mind that like you know you can pick your pick I'd your spots if you want. Ten years ago, I might not agree with that, but I'm getting older and maybe <laughs> you know maybe more wise. I'm not sure of that, but uh, n- there's no way I would yeah. go out in that kind of weather myself right now. And and I. For a couple of reasons. One, a minor injury could become a very major issue for you. And if you have an issue where you need rescue, you're putting a lot of other people in danger. And that's not something I'm willing to do. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of qualified people out there. They have the gear. They have the equipment. You know, as long as they take all that into consideration, I think, you know, it's fine if they do that. But that's not something I would recommend yep. or, or do myself. So, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, given... You know, you've got Friday and Saturday, I think, is when the insane cold weather's going to be in. I think if you can wait till Sunday, if you have to hike, at least wait till Sunday. If for whatever reason you do plan to hike this weekend, I guess the only thing I would say is that, you know, these conditions do give you the opportunity to sort of test your gear. If you So if you have no experience winter hiking, like do not go anywhere on Friday, Saturday. Um if you're an experienced winter hiker and you sort of feel like, yeah, you've been there, done that, and you want to get out, the one thing you could say is that it's an opportunity for you to sort of get a sense on how well your gear is set up. But again, you got to pick your spots. Like you said, like you cannot be in a situation where you're going to be out in the middle of nowhere risking a rescue that you're going to have to get people out there to save you. Like I think you got to stay below tree line, not too far from a trailhead, and you know just pick your spots. I mean, it's not me and you did – we, we went out in a weekend like this one time to sort of test ourselves, but... Correct. And it worked out okay. I don't know if your perspective has changed. But it, yeah. I think we were smart about it. Like, we, we were on the lee side. 
coming up and then we had a summit that was only 50 yards wide and then we were back in the trees so i think you i mean like it like jack said if you're prepared and you're ready in your season then have at it but even even the the prepared and the well-seasoned have that heightened risk going out in weather like this anything can happen to anybody at any time so absolutely so that being said i'll probably hit welch dicky saturday (laughs) (laughs) or at least the overlook i don't know i'm I'm considering it because snowmobile guiding was canceled for saturday it's that bad like everybody is hunkering down for this one yeah it's not a joke yeah yeah, and right now, tentatively, I'm thinking, and it's actually a perfect weekend for it, but I, for whatever reason, for my winter 4,000-footer list, I have to, I, I need Mount Tom. Oh, so I'm sort of thinking, like, that's a perfect mountain to go. It is. And, and, I mean, again, if you have no experience, I would not recommend going out there even on Sunday if it's still cold, but I'm thinking, like, maybe I can do, like, Field and Tom or something, and that, that's pretty easy. I wouldn't even add Avalon into it, I think, at this point. But Yeah, no, we'll that's see. not a bad idea. So we'll see. Any other any other thoughts on fear mongering, Stomp? You got any, any fear mongering you want to do? I did have a thought, and it was related to the podcast. Like, are we contributing to the fear mongering? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope we I hope we balance out on the educational side. But yes, we cover all these stories of disaster and injury and rescues and stuff like that. And it's literally not our intention to uh, create that uh, that idea of you know you shouldn't go out. Um, it's, it's definitely coming from a place of, we want you to be ready and you should go out, but you should go out prepared. So that's our stance. We do not want to contribute to the fear mongering if we have it all. And please don't, don't put us in that category. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think you got to be realistic. I'm a numbers guy. Matter of fact, we're going to go over like the, we're going to look at 2022 search and rescue events last year. And the one thing that stands out to me is that when you look at the volume of hiking that goes on in the whites and you've got like 2.8 million hikes that happen over the course of a year, which is what the, the forest service visitor estimates are for the white mountains. And then you factor in this probably around 200 rescues per year, which means that one out of every 14,000 hikes involves a search and rescue. So the odds are in your favor, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, it doesn't mean that you, there's zero. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I would say about this weekend, if you're going out, this is the weekend where you would pack a, a sleeping bag. Like sometimes people will, they'll say like, oh, I'm going to bring my emergency bivvy, my, you know, those light emergency bivvies in a, a, a sit pad and, and I should be okay. This is where you bring the sleeping pad and you bring the sleeping bag and you go heavy. You, you know, not, none of those running vests this weekend. <laughs> or, uh, and I'm fear mongering. <laughs> yeah, fanny packs. This is not a fanny pack weekend, okay? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, all right. So moving on to our next topic here, Stomp. You have you put a note in here, so we're getting away from hiking for a minute, and we're going to talk about AI. So you're saying that uh, AI is copying voices, mm. and um, yeah. your 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 theory is that with this program in ChatGPT. Maybe we can we can just basically have AI do the podcast for yeah, us. Yeah, I think you and I can check out. I think we'll just <laughs> give ChatGPT in combination with this deep fake voice AI program that's out there now uh, a rough idea of a script, and we'll hire a 
like a, an executive producer other than Luna. And uh, we'll just sit back and let the uh, let it roll. <laughs> we should try one show at least under this premise and see how it goes. <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah, we'll see. But I mean, we joke about this, but actually this is like these these deep fakes. And the, like I've, I used to follow this one that did Tom Cruise and it looked exactly like him, but it was... You know, it should get interesting over the years, but they do have this technology that can basically mimic people exactly and, you know, eventually, you know, stomp your conspiracy theory wheels will get spinning on this stuff. So. Oh, totally. Yeah, no doubt. I've heard some of the deep fake like audio rep representations and they are pretty, pretty accurate. I mean, for a discerning ear, you can maybe they're like 90 percent accurate. Um, but it, it's uh, very interesting times. Like you're gonna have to be really discerning about what you're listening to in the near future. Yes, yeah. So hopefully, um, if you hear me saying anything bad, I'm immediately gonna say it's a deep fake, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right, Stomp. The next thing we had here is you had forgot to share a story about the Catskills. So we had Stosh on last week and uh, last week to talk about the Catskills. You, I guess, missed a story. You have some some history in the yeah, Catskills? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I checked in with uh, Grandma Stomp, my mom, because she was the one that took me oh. out for the uh, the time out there in the Catskills at this Maharishi Yogi, you know, yoga institute. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was just a little guy. The cult? The cult that yes, you were Yes, yes, the cult. The traveling cult where we moved from state to state every week. Um, so she actually, actually reminded me a few extra details. So the people at this, uh, location were vowed to like a, uh, uh, what's the, uh, like a, a state of silence. So they had to give up talking. So they swore to silence, which is really interesting. And, uh, my mom is really proud about this one, but my mom was a super runner, like much like you are, Mike. Um, and it, she found it really funny. She reminded me that there was a race, like a 5K race, a mountain race in the region at the time. And uh, she crushed all of the, uh, <laughs> the, the the yoga participants, which is really funny because a lot of these people, I don't know, I, I suppose they enter into it to, be, to maximize their their energy and uh awesomeness and whatever else and peace and everything else and here's my mom coming along just crushing them <laughs> it was just funny stories there were other stories but i'll save them but they couldn't complain right because they were uh, a vow of silence <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah exactly i mean some of these folks are into like levitation and like like heavy duty stuff really interesting community so it's out there yeah, my my recollection of this Maharishi guy was he was pretty tame. Yeah, but that there was a bunch of accolades or acolytes that sort of spun off from his world. One of which was like the Bikram Yoga guy. Yeah, and yoga to the people and this whole thing. And those ones got a little freaky. That that was mm. um, th- those were wild times. So I think Grandma Stomp is a little like uh, she she had a wild wild life. It sounds like. Yeah, well, I suppose so, but no, she had friends that were into this thing. So, I mean, she not necessarily was into it, but yeah, checking it out. Okay. Um, So the next thing here, Stomp, we have, there was an earthquake in New Hampshire. Did you guys feel this? Well, Jack did. He he lives in Bow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jack, you want to tell us about this? Well, we're around the time that 
that earthquake happened. We didn't know it was an earthquake, but I turned to my wife. I'm like, did you just hear something? Like, it seemed it sounded like a semi-truck going by. You know, we didn't think anything of it because we live on Route 13, which is kind of a busy road going through Bow. And, yeah. you know, not till the next morning, we found out there was a, an earthquake on the other side of town. But, uh, yeah, right here in Bow. What time was it, roughly? Like 6.45-ish, something like that. It was in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did read something somewhere that said that there is a a uh, earthquake fault line that goes from Montreal down to New York, mm-hmm. and that it is has more potential for damage than the one out in California. Wow, interesting. It just hasn't really released the energy like like California does as often, you know. But so so WMUR was saying it was a one point nine. Interesting, yeah. and it was roughly right around just before seven p.m., like you said. Um, yep. And the epicenter was right in, in Bow. Uh, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, we've we've covered some of the volcanic and uh, uh, earthquake activity here before, but the whole state is lined up with this stuff. There's the fear mongering again. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I know, I know the fear mongering, but I, I think we had talked about um, earthquakes before, and there's been three major earthquakes in the last like 400 years in New England. I think one was, I think, off the coast of Massachusetts, and then there was a big one in your neck of the woods by bow in that area. I don't know if exactly bow. I think that was the second biggest one. And then the biggest one was somewhere up in the, the Canadian um, Maritimes in that area. So it must be, or maybe it was up to Montreal. I'm not sure, but yeah, we definitely have the potential for earthquakes around here. So hmm. um, this is interesting. Yeah. On to our next fear mongering story. Uh, next up, stomp your, yeah, more fear mongering with this. So, um, rumors of a big cat sighting at Cannon Stop. I don't know anything about this. So, this is just this is a crazy local towny thing going on. It is, and this is pure rumor and based upon one single message that was sent over. But apparently, a uh, night groomer at Cannon has been stalked by a big cat. And don't ask me what a big cat is. <laughs> It could be whatever. I'm not sure what a big cat would mean. It's a woman over 45, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a possibility. Uh, so it yeah. a PG rating. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're explicit now, so we can say that. So that's okay. Yes. Uh, so who knows what that means? But I have not heard it on the news. Go figure. But yeah. there's that never-ending rumor of big cats in the state that I've yet to see. Uh, apparently they're stalking the poor groomers up at Cannon at night, so watch out. We need video evidence. Or, like, do they at least get footprints? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. I'll try to follow up. Well, this guy needs to bring a little bit more proof. But anyway, if you see big cats in Cannon, then let us know. Um, hmm. Next up here, we're going out to California Stomp. So this is... Mount Baldy, which is a pretty accessible mountain from Los Angeles, in my understanding, uh, legislature is working on strict permitting process after a spat, spat of rescues on Mount Baldy. So um, California does tend to have sort of a, they do lean towards making laws to address everything. So, um, yeah. and this is always a fear of mine that like a major event's going to happen in New Hampshire and it's going to compel somebody to decide that we need to put in some kind of a permitting system, which would not be great, I don't think. But um, this sounds like because of the... So Mount Baldy had a slip and fall death, mm-hmm. and then they had a, a pretty famous actor that's been missing for about two weeks that has yet to been 
been found. And I think there was another fatality there too, right, Son? Correct. Yeah, there's one listed in our uh, upcoming search and rescue section. So there's been at least half a dozen within two to three weeks. Uh, so it's a very active scene. The question is, just as you posed it, is it good or bad? Is a permitting system good or bad? And it got me thinking about locations around the region like Baxter. I mean, that's a pretty rigid uh, process to go there. Um, the whites, not so much, uh, if at all. Uh, you know, there's the suggested hike safe, but there's certainly no like real permit process that I'm aware of. Um, so is it good or bad? I just pose it as a question. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think there's pluses and minuses. I would say the argument for permitting would be, yeah, you would limit access and likely the people that would take the effort to put in a request for a permit might be more motivated to want to hike, therefore be safer hikers. It also gives you an opportunity to sort of set the guidelines to say like, okay, these are the rules and this is what you should expect. Right now it's just open, but the argument against it is that um, it's a, an additional hassle for the you know, 13,999 hikers out of 14,000 that don't need a rescue. Yeah. Well, here's another recent uh, example, Mount Monadnock. Is that a good thing that they have that process to park there and sign up and meet with the ranger in the, in the building? I would uh, probably say it is. I mean, maybe it's just point specific. Maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be an entire forest. It just has to be a location. Uh, for instance, the trailhead at uh, you know Franconia. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Now with Monadnock, do you you have to go meet meet with a for a forest service person? I I never did that. You do. Yep. When you pull in, there's a booth, and the sign says go into the building and sign in. And when you go in, they give you the brief little. Uh, grilling about, have you been here? What do you have for gear? Do you have spikes and this and that? So it's basically like an indoor steward. But beyond that, they, they're confirming your uh, purchase of the, the parking ticket as well. Got it. Yeah, I never did that. I always just bought it online and they just parked. But maybe they do. Maybe it's different in winter. They make you sign in. But Possibly. Yeah, no, I think that those are great ideas. Yeah. I think getting people at the trailhead makes sense, but it's also a funding issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Funding for who? I mean, 16 bucks a pop for a day trip at Monadnock? Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, that pays for the, the forest rangers at the base. So maybe you do that in Franconia and you do that in Mount Washington. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm sure that they're yeah. mostly volunteers sitting in those booths, but yeah, who knows? Yeah, what do you think, Jack? Are we going to make everyone get a permit to hike? <laughs> I certainly hope not. Live free or die. No. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We have to change our plates. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Live free and get a permit. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. And then next up, Stomp, you've got the, you want to get a reminder out. I actually, I'm guilty. I forgot to put something out on our Facebook account, but I'll get that going. So That's fine. we're doing the Golden Gator Award. So this is like a survey for you to fill out to give us like a, your opinion on the best mountain, the best gear, all this fun stuff. It's like 40, 40 categories, right? Oh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, categories that you can fill in for your favorite hike, your favorite online personality. It's a whole bunch of different things, but it's uh, lined up with the Oscars, which are happening on the weekend of the 11th or 12th. So, you know, for the next month or so, log in to 
the link, which you can find on our Instagram link tree and uh, submit your entries. And it's sort of a really cool opportunity, actually, for local talents. Like, I, you know, the first person that comes to mind is like Corey David. Um, you know, people like that, anybody that wants to get their name out there, not that he needs to, but anybody else, it may be a, a cool opportunity for you. But I'm really curious to see uh, what pops up for our results. And uh, so far, it's off to a good running start. And um, I do want to just mention a couple other things here. You can get stickers at Ski Fanatics in Campton off of uh, Exit 28 and down in Andover, Massachusetts off D- Dascom Road. You have Spinner's Pizza Parlor. Apparently somebody just stopped in there the other day and uh, got their sticker, so that's really cool. Oh, I got, I, his name was Ron. So, Ron, thank you for visiting Spinner's and uh, grabbing stickers. And then lastly, you can always advertise with Slasher. If anybody's interested in plugging their business or their gear or whatever, uh, just reach out to us at slasherpodcast at gmail.com, S-L-A-S-R podcast at gmail.com. Very good. So I will get that um, link to the uh, Golden Gators Award out as a reminder on Facebook, and then you can click on our link tree on Instagram to access the survey as well. Mm-hmm. Very good. So what's next on? I think we need a uh, a brief primer on how your Hallmark show was. So, um, <laughs> very exciting. Last week, there was a um, on the Hallmark Channel. There was a hiking themed or an avalanche themed um, romance movie, uh-huh. which um, there was a lot of my hiker friends were talking about this. So it was basically a uh, a scientist who had created some tools to identify avalanches. She had visited Glacier National Park, very um, very nice young lady with her nice sister. They were sort of going on a um, you know a tour of the the park and they met a nice search and rescue avalanche specialist guy who uses instinct and, and his institutional knowledge to understand avalanches. So, her scientific approach and his institutional knowledge approach, they, they sort of disagreed and had um, a lot of tension in the beginning, but that tension quickly turned to love as, as it tends to do in, in Hallmark movies. And <laughs> it was pretty good. They had like a, they showed like some dog rescue drills and stuff like that, but I won't, I don't want to give away the end or a spoiler, but it was good, but not as good as my screenplay that I'm still working on for kittens for water, which, which maybe may or may not be released in the future. So I love it. All right. I've yet to yeah. sit down because I've been busy watching other stuff, which we can talk about in the next segment. All right. Yeah. We'll do a little bit of pop culture talk and then Ben and Jack are going to be like, aren't we here to talk about like real stuff? But <laughs> we'll get through this quickly. So yeah. um, The Last of Us on HBO, this is episode three happened this week. So this is a, uh, a post-apocalyptic dystopian TV show about these zombies that basically take over the world mm. and people have to live in these like safe areas. One of the locations is in Boston. In this episode, two of the main characters escape 10 miles west of Boston. And Stomp, why don't you kind of describe what on the show what 10 miles west of Boston looked like? Yeah, it was sort of like going out to instead of you know you know you and I would leave Boston and drive down or no drive north on what 93 or what have you with a mass pike and 10 miles out we'd hit the Burlington Mall or something like that dead 10 miles out in this show 
is like hitting uh, British Columbia or say like yeah. the Infinite Storm Mountains of Slovakia. Grafton Notch. Yeah, like, Grafton yeah. Notch or whatever. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little yes. off the mark and it was so dramatic at the time. Mrs. Stomp said, wow, if it looked that nice, we would never have moved out of Mass. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's quite fun. I love that. I mean, these shows do their best, but it probably wouldn't take too much research to know that that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they had a Cumberland Farms. The Cumberland Farms had a had a slanted roof. Everybody knows Cumberland Farms have the, the flat roof. Yeah. So the internet was going crazy about that piece of it. But overall, it's a good show. It is. I think that they're, they're doing a lot of setup. I kind of feel like... I've been there, done that when it comes to these sort of Walking Dead type shows, but maybe this one will surprise me. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's what surprised me about episode three. It was uh, a spur into a romance story, which to me was, I, I was looking forward to just the um, the guide and the young girl, but they're, they're probably taking a very short game and expanding it so that they can fill up two seasons, but so far so good. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And, and then you had a note here on, uh, so the only other thing we have here is Physical 100 on Netflix. I don't know anything about that song. Well, it was nice. I got to meet with um, three of my daughters over the weekend, which who I haven't seen for quite a while. Everybody's just grown up and doing their own thing and being super busy. But during that time together, they, we were talking about all of these movies and things. And uh, Grace brought up The Physical 100, and it's a show out of South Korea. And basically, they bring together 100 people of different uh, skills, body types, uh, activities. You know, one person's a dancer, one guy is uh, like a YouTuber, one person's a a Taekwondo master, and they put them through these skills, and whoever drops out loses points and this and that. It's pretty, it's very squid game-ish to a degree, but... It was fascinating because you had, you know, the, the first thing they start out with is is sustained hanging. So you have to hang by your hands or your elbows or whatever for several minutes and whoever lasts. So obviously the person that weighs 300 pounds doesn't make it. And they put them through various activities that really challenge all these different body types. And uh, it's fascinating so far. It's super worth the watch. It's really interesting. Very surprising. All right, I'll check it out. Yeah. That's all we got for Pop Culture Stomp, I think. Yeah. We have a couple donations. Someone, I can't stand when the uh, coffee platform does this, but it chopped off their name and it says someone. Someone donated three coffees and uh, they just wanted to say thanks for the show. And uh, Jennifer Rook, Frooks, uh, J.F. Rooks, <laughs> uh, donated five and reminded us that uh, this weekend was going to be like hiking in Hoth from Star Wars, which is probably pretty accurate. And uh, also, they're probably moving to New Hampshire soon, so that's super exciting. Good luck with all that, and uh, hopefully we'll see you on the trails a little more often. But uh, thank you, everybody, for the donations. Okay, so welcome to episode 91 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week we are joined by Ben Rossi and Jack Daly of the New Hampshire Civil Air Patrol. So welcome, welcome. 
Um, we had previously covered Civil Air Patrol way back in episode 28, and this week we wanted to revisit um, to learn more about Jack's experience as a new member and Ben's role as a squadron commander of the Concord uh, Composite Squadron. In addition to Civil Air Patrol, uh, we will also do a deep dive on the updated search and rescue data for 2022. This will include some new insights on yearly trends, causes of incidents, and some ideas on ways to potentially limit the volume of search and rescue events in the future. So there's some good trends and some good insights there. So we'll cover all this and some recent search and rescue news. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right. All right. So you want to do some sponsor stuff here, Stomp? Yeah. Hey, listen, it's been a little while. Our format's a little bit different, but we want to remind everybody that uh, we have a couple supporters, which are fantastic. And that's uh, EMS. Uh, your Northeast go-to for outdoor gear, guidance, education, and more since 1967. Check them out at ems.com. And then, of course, uh, our first foremost supporter, which has been fantastic for us, and that is at Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun. Just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4K footers, and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. Very, very cool. And then we have CS Coffee, one of our sponsors, who offers instant coffee in compostable packages, and it's zero waste. So perfect for the trail and home. Each packet makes about 20 ounces of coffee, so you can take one of them on an overnight trip. And it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. Put it in your backpack, find some hot water, and you're good to go. Learn more by going to our show notes or Google CS, that's the letter C and the letter S, Instant Coffee. Or visit them at www.csinstant.coffee. Very good, Stomp. So this is the part of the show where we typically talk about beer. I am not drinking a beer tonight. I'm drinking water, which I'll explain why in a moment. But do you drink anything good? Mm. I'm fin- finishing up a Health Aid kombucha, but I have a beer with me, which I have yet to crack open. And it's um, a Hovered Ridge Double IPA, which is by Ten Bends Beer, which I believe is out of Vermont. And... Um, I've yet to try it, so I'll let you know a little later how it tastes. So nothing for you, Mike, awesome. huh? Nothing for me, Jack, Ben. Any you guys drinking a beer tonight, or are you just sticking with water? No, I'm no. drinking water, too. <laughs> wow. Very nice, Ben. You got anything, or are you just drinking water as well? I just gave a couple pints of blood, so uh, nothing but warm tea for me tonight. <laughs> yeah, I got to rehydrate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're in the same boat as me, so... Um, stump recent hikes here. So, um, the only thing I've been hiking is Mount Colonoscopy. So, I just got a colonoscopy. So, which also explains why I'm only drinking a beer here. So, I'm only drinking water and not a beer. Oh so. boy. Well, you know, I have committed to the seven day a week work routine because snowmobile guiding has kicked in full gear. So this yep. weekend was the, the opening weekend. Uh, not quite a hike, but it was very interesting. I mean, just a couple cool little points. Um, you know, starting up the sleds after uh, a summer season off, some of the batteries, ex- you know, expectedly don't work, but the supply chain issues have impacted uh, the industry, unfortunately. So 
I'm hearing that sometimes some of these batteries for the sleds can take six months or more to find, which is ridiculous. Um, so that's one interesting thing that came out of the weekend. Uh, during, you know, over the weekend, I had four tours of 10 sleds uh, each. So they were four three hour tours with 10 sleds. Pretty intense. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I saw one car, this is something that happens every year, one car stuck way the hell in up on Cherry Mountain Road coming from the north side. And, you know, we're driving by on the sleds and this guy's putting chains on his wheels. And I, I just don't understand how he actually got out. But the next day I drove by the same spot and the car was out. He must have been pulled out by a groomer. I just cannot imagine him driving out of there. So people are still driving and just paying no attention to the signs to stay off the uh, the sledding trails. So I don't know. It happens all the time. Um, there was one crash coming off of Wombeck uh, that we had. Uh, simple thing, you know, taking a left turn and somebody throttled too hard and just went right off the trail. Um, yeah, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So fishing game was on the prowl. I was actually, this is funny, Mike. <laughs> It's like, as opposed to being tailed by like a statey or something like that, we're coming down off a Wombeck and I'm getting tailed by a fishing game officer who was, I don't know, I got the impression they were definitely looking at my speed. So I like locked it in at 45 miles an hour. And I, was like, yeah. I felt like a teenager, like, oh my God, I'm going to get pulled over. But if you so, but if you're, if you're working the tour, yeah. is it just you with 10 people or is it two, is it a lead and a back person? It's, there's two, two guides. So depending on who's, you know, whose tour it is, you're either the, the friend, the guide or the tail gunner in the back. And on that, yeah. that particular tour, the other guide and I were just sort of tossing it up and mixing it up because ultimately that. 10 had to be divided into two groups because several of the the people were really slow and the person that crashed all of a sudden just dropped down to like 10 miles an hour the whole time so yeah, i made i made the call i'm like listen we got to break this up because half of the half of the people are going to be pissed off because they're not going to get their tour that they were expecting and the other half is just unfortunately in this slow motion mode so stuff like that happens all the time so you just got to roll with it yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so, uh, yeah, crazy weather. Um, go ahead. Explain. So, for I guess going back to the 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 state the 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 state or whatever, if you get pulled over and you're like a guide yeah. of a group, is that that can't be good, right? That's bad. Oh, that would be bad. Yeah, that would be really bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're responsible for all these people, um, and we educate the people that sign up to abide by the rules, you know, two-way traffic, mm-hmm. 45 miles an hour. So yeah, I mean, th- this outfit is fantastic. They don't they don't break those rules at all ever. Um, yeah. We may punch it a little bit here and there, like on the rail trails that connect to Appalachia. Um, but for the most part, we're being really cautious and, and being, you know, legitimate guides for these people. Uh, it's just, it's not a, a safe uh, activity if you're goofing around yeah. or if you're drinking or whatever, you just can't mess around with these gigantic machines and it's just so exposed. So yeah, we take it really serious. Yeah, yeah I bet. Now, can you explain like, so if you're in Bretton Woods, yeah. you'll go, you can go down like the base station road yep. and then get to Jefferson Notch. Is that how you get to like Cherry Mountain and Wombeck or how do you, how do you end up in Wombeck from where you are? 
well, the cog is its own separate tour, so that's a dead end. So we can go down to the cog and do a lunch trip where we just drive down and then drop people off for a couple hours. They go up the cog, come back, and then we we all drive back. Um, if you're going down the access road towards the cog, you just take Jefferson Notch Road up to Caps Ridge and then come down the northern side, and that brings you to the rail trail. And from there, there are just innumerable, innumerable amounts of trails that you can take to Canada, like Graf, uh, Berlin, Gorham, just you name it, you can go anywhere. Um, but generally speaking, a, like a two-hour tour would be up to Caps Ridge, Jefferson Notch, down... Yep perhaps up over Mitten Mountain, which heads over towards Owl's Head and Mount Martha. And that connects okay. to Cotton Mountain uh, or, or yeah, Cherry Cherry Mountain Road. Or you can do that counterclockwise, the same thing, but backwards. But there's just so many options, uh, really never-ending options. So it's really neat. Uh, by the way, <clears throat> this Saturday, the sled's or canceled because of the weather, but Sunday, uh, Mrs. Stomp signed up for a three-hour tour, so that's super cool. That's going to be a lot of fun. Oh boy! Oh, yeah, boy. she's she so be the one driving up. ten miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> she she is nervous about that, but she's pretty savvy with these things. So I, I have high hopes for her. Actually, she'll do fine. Yeah. <laughs> I did send Je- so Jack. I sent Stomp like I was watching these videos. I don't know how they came up on my feed, but I was watching these videos and. Um, one of them was a guy trying to get his sled up on the back of a pickup truck. Oh, and he yeah. like, these sleds are really powerful. He drove up the, like these metal things. And then he got into the pickup truck bed and he had to goose it a little bit, but he goosed it too much. And he went basically airborne and flipped <laughs> over the bed of the truck. And the sled and him both fell out of the tree. He went flying like 10 feet in the air. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So. That'll ruin yeah. your day. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> Crazy. But I would highly encourage it, though, nonetheless. It's really nice experience just to try it once. Yeah, I know. I got to get up there, Stomp. I'll, I'll, I'll stay in touch. I'll, I got I got some free time, but I am focusing on that winter 4,000-footer list, so it's tough. True, true. All right, so you, uh, I've got a couple notable hikes here. Um, if you okay. want your notable hike to be uh, mentioned on the show, just tag Slasher on your post on Instagram. Um, no guarantees you'll be plugged on the show because sometimes we get overwhelmed with them, but this week seems uh, pretty reasonable. So Full Strength Coffee uh, did Tom Field Avalon with Vets on the 48. Super cool. Um, Jester uh, did South and North Doublehead. Cami Fit 71, 15 Fabulous. That's a hell of a handle. Uh, butt sledding on Pierce. So I guess butt sledding season is in full effect. And then Shandy did Robert Shaw and Black Snout. Rhonda Willett, 68, Kearsage North. And uh, she made mention that she slept over. And I've been in this situation, Mike, and I'm sure you have as well. You get there. And you either strike out or you you hit gold. And she hit gold. There was nobody at Kearsage North. And then sure enough, two other groups of two showed up with gigantic backpacks and they lost out. There was just no room for anybody. So she lucked out. So it happens. Yeah, I saw that. She had a whole crew of like, so some of the folks that did the buddy hike. So I think Heather was on that and uh, Lynn and, and a few other people. So that was a fun 
fun group up there. But um, yeah, I think if I was one of those, two, I would have been like, squeeze in, ladies. I'm sleeping over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I guess it depends on the situation. That that surprisingly, that tower is pretty tight though when you're in there. But uh, I think I I'll have to look at the pictures. But it looked like they had like probably eight or nine people in there. I definitely yeah. would have been like, look. Move Time over. to sco- sco- scooch over. <laughs> scooch over, fatty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make some room. Over. We're doubling up. Yeah. I'm laying on top of you. That's oh, right. Man. That's right. Although I think I don't know what your thought is, but like I think you but you you bring a tent, right? With the idea that you're just in case set up like underneath or yeah. somewhere close you, by. Well, I would. If I was going to take that risk knowing that I'm probably going to get shut out, I would definitely bring a winter tent. And sleeping bag and all yeah, that on a, stuff. Yeah, on a weekend, a weekend definitely. Like I think the weekday, you're probably better off. But I don't know. But that would that would be a fun group, of, you know. <laughs> it's your wet scooch over, scooch over. <laughs> so. Everybody spoon. Let's go. Yeah, that's right. All right. So the last one here. S.E. Casson uh, just did Mount Monadnock and mentioned that I was just up there recently, but this person had phenomenal a phenomenal day, just like bright blue sky, blue, just looked awesome. So, uh, congrats. Um, any any of those strike you as notable, like the winner, Mike? Yeah, we'll go with the ladies on Kearsarge North. All right, that's cool. And we just have, uh, I have two- a personal bias because I'm friends with some of them now. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we just have two... Uh, sponsors here before we get started with the the stars of the show so Vaucluse gear back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes not only is it uncomfortable sweat is a risk factor especially in this sub-zero weather coming up causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back check out Vaucluse's cool dry backpack airflow frame a backpack accessory that installs in your favorite pack sized 18 liters to 65 liters and creates an airflow gap between you and your pack whether you're in hot or cold temps even if you're if, if you have a pack with a curved frame, uh, the cool dry frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow. So visit valclusegear.com to order a cool dry frame today. And then finally, we have Sweet Beginnings Daycare. It's a New Hampshire state licensed child care provider that offers care for children from six weeks to 12 years with flexibility in before and after school care as well. Sweet Beginnings aims to instill a love for learning by providing a safe and positive experience within a loving and warm environment. Sweet Beginnings Daycare believes this is a good foundation to teach children in order to prepare them for their future. For more information, contact Sweet Beginnings at 603-568-4530. Visit them at Sweet Beginnings Daycare on Facebook or email Shandy at shandyelliot at outlook.com. Get rid of those kids. Send them to the sweet beginnings and, and go hiking. That's right. That's right. Very good. So, all right, Jack and Ben, this is your moment. You guys ready? Always. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool. Awesome. So welcome back. So welcome uh, back, Jack Daly, and welcome Ben Rossi. Um, so we had mentioned this in the intro, but um, we had previously, Jack, had you on when you had initially joined Civil Air Patrol. You were with Colonel Ninnis, 
and uh, we got a good background on um, the Civil Air Patrol. So definitely, if anybody wants to revisit that episode, it's episode 28. Um, you can definitely check that out. But I think why don't we just start with um, probably Ben? If you wanna you wanna go first, if you could just introduce yourself, give a little bit of background, sort of talk about your role in Civil Air Patrol, and then I'd be curious to know if you have any background or interest in hiking. I'm really dug into that. I know Jack does, but um, why, don't, why don't you start, Ben, with an intro? Uh, you bet. Good evening. Uh, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a transplant here in New England. I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest. I uh, got here by way of the Caribbean, followed work up to this area. Uh, I was a pilot uh, as a career, and uh, I decided to go back to school, become an engineer. Um, landed me in New Hampshire for work, and uh I didn't do much flying while I was in school, just wasn't in the budget. But uh, once I got back to work, it was something I wanted to do. I needed a safe way to go about it and a good community to uh, get involved with to you know, find that level of, of you know, culture that culture of safety and professionalism that you know, I had flying as a career. And uh, I met some people from the Civil Air Patrol, got involved with that. And uh, it was a great way to get back into flying, uh, got involved in emergency services and then on some squadron level activities. The squadrons are our local units. And uh, became a squadron commander during COVID. Uh, admittedly, it probably had more to do with uh, lower participation during COVID and I was still around, <laughs> but uh, it's been great. Uh, I have a daughter who's involved now. And um, so I do commander of the squadron in Concord. I also do recruiting and retention for, for the state and the squadron. It's your chance to put a so, plug out there, uh, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Any, anyone know, uh, huh? interested in aviation, search and rescue, getting out there, uh, getting out of the house, meeting other people, and uh, doing some fun stuff? The, the sky is the limit as, as to what you can do and how much involvement you can have. And like every organization right now, we're, we're hurting for volunteers. Uh, people just don't, don't seem ready to come out of their houses yet. Huh. That's interesting. I don't know if you guys realize this, but uh, the last time you know, Colonel and I were on, we actually had one of your listeners on your podcast, like listen to us about Civil Air Patrol, and she came down and joined our unit. Her name is Jane. Oh, awesome. I don't want to give a last name because I'm not sure she wants that disclosed. But as a shout out to Jana for uh, listening to you guys and, and and joining us. Huh? You guys send awesome. us uh, the royalty or what? <laughs> we'll have you, we'll have her send the royalty to you. <laughs> right. So Ben, I guess I'm curious if. If you were a young person that wanted to get into flying but sort of had no idea on how to go about that and you didn't have a lot of money to sort of pay for flight school and something like that, is Civil Air Patrol something where you can – and I know you don't, you're not going to necessarily offer like people to fly planes, but is it a good way to sort of network to get yourself connected with people that might be in that world where you could eventually you know, lead to flying planes, whether it's you know, with Civil Air Patrol or some other – other path it's it's a good way to to meet people and uh, you know i guess kind of get a feel for the for the type of people who, who choose aviation as a career what what paths they've taken what what decisions they've made um uh, it can it can be a tricky path there's more more than one way to get there uh, you know, some people want to choose the military some want to do civilian aviation and uh a, a cadet who joins definitely will, will get up in an airplane and a glider, get some experience and, you know, experience before they have to open their wallet or their parents' wallet to, to pay for it. 
So it's a it's a it's a great opportunity. And uh, you know, some some people love it. Some people they they take that opportunity to find out that it's just not for them. That being in an airplane isn't something that they want to do all so much anymore. Got it. And then, um, do you do you have any background? And this is a hiking podcast, so I'm just kind of curious. Have you been out hiking in New Hampshire? Or are you more uh, focused on uh, the aviation side? Oh, we do. Uh, uh, my uh, wife, myself, our, our two daughters, we, we do quite a bit of just day, day hiking around the area, and nothing, nothing too serious. But you know, just about it. Every other week or every three weeks during the summer, we'll take a Saturday or Sunday, get up early, try and beat the crowds. <laughs> okay, perfect. Try. So what we're talking about isn't completely foreign to you then? <laughs> Not at all, no. Perfect. Great. So, um, Jack, why don't you um, just reintroduce yourself and, again, talk a little bit about this. So when we last left you, you were just starting your Civil Air Patrol um volunteer activity and i think it's been over a year at this point so why don't you talk a little bit about your background with civil air patrol we can get a little bit into your hiking background as well um but if you could just reintroduce yourself that'd be great sure uh my name is jack daly and about a year and a half ago i was looking for something to do and i saw i think it was on facebook of all places so well maybe it was a commercial about uh, civil air patrol and they were talking about um ground search and rescue now i had done that so i figured well, this is a great opportunity for me to jump right in there. I got some experience. I hit the ground running. Well, when I got to the squadron, I found out that uh, we don't really have a lot of search and rescue from you know, the perspective that I was looking at. It's more uh, they go looking for um, – well, they, they work in conjunction with us when we're doing exercises. And you know, they might actually go out and look for the airplane if you know, we're looking for an actual aircraft that went down. But uh, it wasn't what I was looking for. And I was told by the Colonel Ninnis that uh, we have so many – I hesitate to use the term professional, but we have dedicated groups of search and rescue. That's what they do. They have the gear. A lot of our cadets and, and you know, senior members as well probably don't have that kind of you know, uh, hiking equipment that would, would lend themselves to be actually going out in the woods and going up on a mountain looking for somebody. So, But once I got in, I found out it was a lot more than that. And you know, there's so many, like Ben said, you're limited only by how much you want to do. There are so many different things you can do in this. And since we talked, I was just a senior member. Uh, since then, I've been promoted to second lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Um, I have become a mission scanner, which means I qualified to sit in the back left seat of the airplane, looking for whatever, looking for either hikers or you know, downed aircraft or whatnot. Um, I've also uh, qualified to be a mission observer, and that gives me the right front seat. So, kind of like a, a co-pilot. Although I don't ever get to touch the you know the controls and fly, but I get to work the uh, radios, and uh, I'm learning how to do the navigation. So that's kind of fun to do. And um, I'm about ready to start training as an aerial photographer. And I just need to get a one of our uh, Civil Air Patrol cameras assigned to me. And then I can go out on missions, you know, for pra- uh, practice missions first. And then you know, hopefully eventually, hopefully we don't ever have to use that. Nobody ever goes down in an aircraft. We don't need to, to look, for, uh, look for that stuff. But with aerial photographers, a lot of that is um, during uh, damage assessment for like hurricanes or whatnot and and uh, so that seems kind of interesting to me. I have a an interest in photography, to say anyway. So, oh, wow. but uh, this, mm-hmm. you know, that's the things I've done in the squadron. I've become an assistant emergency services opera, uh, officer as well as an assistant aerial aerospace education officer, and I'm training at the wing level along with Ben to be a uh, what is it? Air operations branch director is what it's called. And 
what that is is that group is actually responsible for the flight crews, the the briefing, the debriefing. Uh, you know, we keep track of the aircraft, where they are, you know, who's flying them, and all that kind of stuff. It's a lot to learn. I'm no way near qualified for that yet. So right now, I'm kind of just you know, learning the ropes and whatnot. So a lot of fun things. Mm. Awesome. And then you're, um, so you have a pretty, I mean, we talked about this before, but you have a pretty deep hiking background as well. So when you're up in the air, you feel like you kind of know the mountains, like the back of your hand. It's a whole different perspective to see them from up there. Really? We're flying at about, uh, what, then what would you say our average uh, flight uh, altitude is about 2,000, uh, 1,500 feet? For a search type flight, probably about 1,500 feet above the ground level. So, yeah, yeah. But it's neat to, you know, look out at all these mountains and say, hey, you know, I've hiked that one, I've hiked that one, I've hiked that one. And to see them from that uh, <laughs> that point of view is kind of cool. And That's one neat. time last year during much warmer weather, we did a, a mountain flying over, um, was it Manadnock? No, it wasn't Manadnock. I, I, I can't remember the, what the mountain it was, but it was, uh, it was, um, oh, it was, uh, I'm sorry, no, that's just, I can't remember which one it was, but it was a very popular mountain, and uh, we flew around the base of the mountain, slowly got up to altitude, and then we could actually see some, you know, some hikers at the top, which is kind of, it was, I think maybe it was Kearsarge, but uh, I got to wave to them, and yeah. you know, they were waving back at the airplane, uh, that was kind of oh, neat, and then wow. uh, we would follow, uh, go to the top, and then they followed down like a drainage in the aircraft, I mean, that was kind of interesting, being that close to the, uh, to the mountain in, a, in an aircraft, and uh, flying down, and the, the mountains go look really big in that windshield as you're approaching them in a small little uh, engine like that. I mean, aircraft like that. I bet. I'm, I'm hmm. curious, like Ben or Jack, maybe if you could tell me, do you do you mostly navigate planes by? I have no idea about aviation, but do you mostly navigate by radar or do you navigate by sight? Like, can you just be like, okay, let's find 93, and then I know where Franconia Ridge and Cannon is, or I know where. Um, Crawford notches. Like, how, what's the difference between sort of using the radar equipment to navigate versus doing it on with sight? Sure, yeah, I'd, I'd say the, the vast majority of majority of it these days is uh, GPS based, but uh, you're definitely keeping track okay. as you go along using uh, charts. Also, uh, we'll, we'll carry just the the gazetteer with this, uh, especially if you're doing a search or uh, as as the spring comes up, we'll be doing fire patrols. And uh, you, you do really need to know where you are, what landmarks you're nearby, because if, if all of a sudden you need to get in contact with another agency and get them to the area, you know, the, you, can, you can pick a GPS coordinate in an aircraft and fly right to it. But if you got to go there by road, it's, you, need to, you need to know, you know how to get there. So... Uh, Interesting. And then with the fire patrol, so it's been generally pretty quiet in the whites over the knock on wood for the last five or six years. Like we had the one big forest fire up by Beaver Brook. And then last year we had like, I think three big ones. Is it standard for you guys every year to run fire patrols or do you do them based on ground reports and then you get up in the air? Like, is it, I guess, is it proactive or is it more reactive? It's proactive, but uh, it's based on what the, the, the fire threat level is. So we'll be, we'll be on standby. Okay. You know, probably April through June, I believe this is the season that we'll be on standby every day. And uh, if the fire danger is elevated or if just the humidity is low enough and the winds have picked up enough, 
uh, we'll try and get out there. And uh, I, I believe it also also has a bit to do with you know how the staffing is at the fire towers at that time of year. They some of them it, some of them are a little delayed getting some people up there. So uh, when when we do our patrols, we're we're in communication with the towers, and uh, if, if they spot anything, of course they they can look out and see a trail of smoke coming up, but they can't tell exactly how far away it is or what landmarks it's nearby. So we'll get directions to follow those. Got it. Huh. And will you bring people up that are the ones I, I know it's so I'm always curious about this and I've never really gotten an answer. It's like one of those things like you think about, but you never think to ask the question at the time. But a lot of times when you have forest fires, they'll say like it's X amount of acres and then it's X percentage contained are you taking the people up that are making those assessments on on what the status is, or is that done on the ground? Uh, part of our, our contract does involve uh, bringing some personnel with us if, if they would like to. Uh, the, the vast majority of it is just radio communication with personnel who are, who are on the ground. Got it. Interesting. So hopefully it'll be quiet, but I feel like last year was like super busy when, when it came to forest fires. There was like three big ones. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we actually had, uh, we were up at Whitefield for a training exercise last year and, uh, it was a Crawford notch fire fire started over there, right in the middle of our training exercise. And <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, that was a, a wild area for a couple of weeks for sure. Um, and then Jack, just sort of going back to you as far as like the last year and a half goes. So you've transitioned into civil air patrol. Um, do you at this point feel like, um, you know, if you could look back at your time as a, as a beginner or a newly entering uh, member of the civil air patrol, like what would you say to prospective people that might be interested in joining to sort of talk about your experience and sort of sell them on the idea of considering volunteering? I would say maybe not get so overwhelmed with all the possibilities that you can do and all the different paths you can take. I, I'm one of those, uh, we'll call it maybe ADD, <laughs> but uh, when I got there, it was like, oh, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this. And, you know, I wanted to do so many things and, and you know, that can really, yeah, well, I don't know about <laughs> that, but it'll, uh, you know, it can drag you down and, and, and just see overwhelming. And, you know, so I'd say maybe just you know, talk to some of the members that are they're doing, see what they're doing, what they like, what they don't like, or you know how they came about things, and, um, and and pick what interests you. I mean, not everybody goes to Civil Air Patrol to be you know in, in a flight crew. I mean, as Ben said, some people you know they find out it's just not for them, and you know maybe they want to work in the HQ during exercises or things like that. So a lot of opportunities for that, but uh, yeah, maybe don't get so overwhelmed by all the choices is what I'd probably give them as advice. Interesting. So um, just for the listeners, if, if you didn't listen to the last episode that we covered Civil Air Patrol, just quickly sort of the origins and the history of Civil Air Patrol. And, you know, you guys can jump in and, and fill this fill this in because uh, you probably forgot more about this than I will ever know. But I think it's we're coming up on like the 80 or 81st anniversary of Civil Air Patrol. It was formed in December 1941 after... Um, an aviator by the name of Gil Rob Wilson returned from Germany convinced of, um, I guess a, you know, he, he had this idea that, you know, war was 
pending in that, um, or maybe it was 31, I'm sorry, not 41. Um, so he wanted to mobilize um, civilian aviators to defend the homeland in, I think, 1938. Um, there was some units that were formed globally. And then by 1941, uh, they had launched what's called Civil Air Defense Services um, and partnered with LaGuardia in New York. Um, he was a mayor of New York to... Um, I guess, propose this civil air uh, defense service to be used as a national model. And over the course of World War II and post-war, uh, more of these, these programs were set up. In 1942, the Civil Air Patrol Cadet Program began for boys and girls ages 15 to 18. And then by 1946, President Truman incorporated Civil Air Patrol, and it was officially, I guess, approved um, with the creation of the U.S. Air Force as a separate branch of the, um, when the, when the U.S. Air Force was created as a separate branch, Truman signed legislation to establish Civil Air Patrol as a civilian auxiliary in 1948. So, um, since then, there's been three main missions of Civil Air Patrol. There's emergency services. There's the Cadet Program, and then aerospace education. So, Ben, I don't know if you want to just kind of sort of break down those three missions and what those entail for us. You bet. Uh, so emergency services for us, uh, the main mission that we prepare for in this region of the country is uh, has a lot to do with aerial photography and what we can do for FEMA in the event of emergency. Uh, you know, if, the, if that fault we were talking about let go tomorrow, uh, we'd, we'd be up there taking pictures of everything from earthen dams up in the north country to uh, power infrastructure. Yeah. And it uh, would pro- probably be some of the first images that got out there for mapping. Hmm. Uh, we, we do do some uh, traditional searches still. Uh, I know back, back in November when that young lady was missing, first went missing up in uh, the Whites, we had an aircraft up there during that incident um, searching as well. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the mission has evolved quite a bit with the, the 406 beacons, uh, the personal beacons that are available now. Um, you know, for one thing, people are carrying a beacon. Uh, and in the past when they were, it was a, a beacon that had a very short range and it didn't really tell you where they were. And if they were in a canyon or near some higher mountains, that signal bounced off of everything made yeah. of granite and made it difficult to find. Now you get a now you get a signal to a satellite and you know exactly where they are. But uh, cadet programs, that's uh, a, a big part of what we do as well. We have quite a number of cadets in the state. I think we got uh, just around 200 of them currently in, in New Hampshire. And these are uh, cadets, I guess, uh, could kind of describe it in a way as like a, a community-based ROTC program for cadets who want to go into the military. So it, it doesn't have to be something associated with their school. Um so the cadets are there either to find out what it might be like to go into the military, uh, even though we're not a recruiter, we certainly can open doors. Uh, we have cadets who are interested in becoming pilots, either in the military or civilian life. Uh, we have cadets who are interested in aerospace, other STEM activities, and some cadets who are just doing it as a uh, character and leadership developing program that they can put on their on their college applications and on their job applications. 
And uh, aerospace education kind of merges into that cadet program a bit, but uh, it's something that we do in the state here. Uh, we can provide it for schools and other institutions, and we also invite educators from schools into our program as well. They're able to take part uh, in our program, use some of our resources. Uh, there's quite a bit of curriculum. We have uh, quite a few STEM and science kits that we're that we have access to that we can get uh, through grants, and that makes for a pretty good program for the for the kids and the adults. It's interesting. It could be anything from basic, uh, you know, electronics kits to drones and remote-controlled aircraft, and model That's, rockets. Yeah, model rockets as well. It's interesting. Awesome. And then um, do you have like a specific cycle where um, you kick off the cadet program or is that that, that done throughout the year? Can, can anybody sign up on demand? Uh, COVID's kind of shaking stuff up. So we used to do uh, twice a year. Now I'd say about four or five times a year. Uh, once we get groups of cadets, I'd say about maybe five or six cadets here, at least at least in our Concord squadron. And we'll we'll bring in a class of new cadets. And there'll be a cohort. You know, it's 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 something you want to get them in as a as a group so that they can to have those wingmen to enter the program with. Got it. So you get the word out through the schools and, and different um, community organizations, and then they there's a sort of a window for sign up. And then once you get a group of or a cohort of young volunteers, then they you start off another program for them. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, word of mouth does pretty good. Uh, it's it's odd. It seems uh, you know, the, the phone lines will be quiet for for a while. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of new cadets will call and say, I want to I want to get into the program. And you find out that, yeah, someone someone's mom or someone's friend was talking about cadets going flying in airplanes and <laughs> got everyone interested. Got it. And then what, um, either you or Jack could probably answer this, but what sort of time commitment is involved in, in volunteering? Uh, it's as much or as little yeah. time as you can spare. Mm -hmm. um, every, every little bit helps. Um, we, you know, in, in the state of New Hampshire, our volunteers uh, range from retired people who it's practically a, another full-time job for them. To employ people, it was practically not a full-time job for them, <laughs> uh, you know, by choice, by choice. Um, to people who, you know, maybe they show up one weekend a month on our Saturday training event to, just to uh, check in, get some some training and qualifications checked off, and uh, participate as best they can. Interesting. And then from an equipment perspective, like the airplanes that you fly, are those planes like per privately owned by people that are um, associated with Civil Air Patrol or do you have uh, like a dedicated fleet that's that's used? There is a it's a national fleet. It's owned by the nonprofit organization. So they're technically a corporate aircraft fleet. And uh, so the, the funding comes through the, the nonprofit to maintain those aircraft. And a lot of the money to operate them actually comes from, from, from the air force for training and missions. Mm, I was just going to ask that, you know, being an auxiliary of the air force, just uh, <laughs> wondering how the, uh, the financial setup was. 
So what um, could you give a percentage of like donation versus uh, federal funding that you receive? I, I'm not familiar with those oh, numbers, okay. I'm afraid. Just curious. It, it definitely varies. It's a, yeah. Um, as far as the way that Civil Air Patrol is set up, so you've got eight regions, and then you call them wings or squadrons, I think. Um, so New Hampshire is one of the the wings of of civil air patrol and then within the wings there's different squadrons is that right correct yep great and then your what is your title your 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 oversee the the conquered squadron yep the the commander of the conquered squadron so we're uh, what's known as a composite squadron it means we have both senior or adult members and cadets uh, there could also be cadet squadrons or senior squadrons that don't participate in, in both aspects of the program. It kind of depends on the demographics of the area, who's available to volunteer. Got it. Interesting. So, and then with the emergency services then, so for examples are you'll help to assist search and rescue missions. You'll assess, you'll, you'll help with fire, um, forest fire observation and then if something crazy happens, like a, a natural disaster or I'm assuming like a crazy storm or something like that, it's, it, the Civil Air Patrol is generally like initial, immediately sort of up in the air when it's safe to do so to assess damage quickly for different agencies. Is there anything else that, that you guys get involved with? Uh, we Or air, aircraft recovery as well, right? Yep. Yeah, uh, if there's an aircraft down... We can help help search for the beacon. Um, most of our beacon searches are tend to be an aircraft that's safe on the ground at an airport that someone actually accidentally triggered their beacon and went home for the night, and uh, mm-hmm. we have to go find it and, <laughs> and get a hold of them to come and turn it off. Uh, hmm. But uh, yeah, the uh, basically as a as a nonprofit corporate entity, we can do any missions for the state that they might request at a pr- pretty good discount um, for operations, com- especially compared to setting up a helicopter or a larger aircraft. And uh, any of the other emergency services missions tend to go through the National Operations Center and get dispatched to us. And those will typically receive some sort of federal funding to do those missions. Got it. Well, it's very interesting. It's it's so fascinating how, you know, like search and rescue in New Hampshire is basically set up with this volunteer model where you've got, you know, fishing game basically directing, you know, local law enforcement and then engaging the, the volunteer service groups. I think there's like six or seven different volunteer service groups. So it's sort of as similar with the air patrol is I'm assuming you get the military, um, that will will take the lead on a lot of this, and then they'll utilize Civil Air Patrol to support as needed. Um, and then you work with a bunch of different other agencies, it sounds like. So it is interesting how it seems like on the surface it would be a confusing bureaucracy, but it seems to seems to work really well. I guess do you do you find that it's it's pretty easy to engage with all the all the uh, the partners that you work with through Civil Air Patrol? Yeah, we have a lot of. Uh 
of, of senior staff members who have, you know, good personal working relationships with people in these other agencies in New Hampshire. Um, so the, you know, the programs that are renewed annually, it's, you know, pretty good handshake going on. It's, it's not, uh, it's not a faceless customer. They're people we know and we work with and, Interesting. And then with the aerial photography that you do, can you talk a little bit about logistically, how does that work? You're not hanging out of the window of an airplane taking a photo. Like, is it, is it like a photography equipment that's mounted on the, on the plane itself that you work or how, how does it work? It's funny you said that about the hanging out the window. There's actually in the back left seat, there's a little, I, I call it like a trap door window that will open up, stick the camera lens right out that way and take our photos. Hmm. But Ben can speak really? more to that than I can, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our, uh, our, our standard equipment is just a, a regular, you know, digital single reflex lens camera. And uh, we slow down to about 90 knots and we open that window and the, the breeze isn't too bad, especially in the summer, and uh, take our photos that way. That's cool. They're uh, geotagged and we, we can upload them to whatever system, the, the we'll call them the customer, whatever system they want. Um, there is a, another program making its way into this part of the country that actually does allow some live streaming of photos and video, and they appear on a, kind of like a Google Map type interface that the, the customer can look at and get a live time feed, which is a, a really important system for for them during something like a earthquake or a hurricane where you do get that first look out there and they can do a live assessment of the damage and not have to wait for teams to come back, process images and transmit them. Wow. That would be really fascinating. I'd love to get up there and like, um, I wonder you, you guys probably would never get called for this, but like sometimes like new slides happen on the mountains. Jack knows what I'm talking about. Like getting up there to sort of assess how big of a slide it is. Um, you know, that's probably a waste of the civil air patrols time, but it's good for hikers and climbers. So, someday. but that's, but that's interesting. So, um, what, what does it take to become a, an aerial photographer? How much training is involved in that pen? Uh, for aerial photographer, uh, you enter the flight crew. So you take some basic uh, courses. Uh, we call them general emergency services courses. Kind of learn about uh, what's going on, who's who's in command, what your resources are. Um, you enter the flight crew at a position called mission scanner, which is basically the person who sits in the back seat and scans when you're searching for someone. Um, and that's that's good experience for an aerial photographer because. That's also the seat that the aerial photographer tends to, tends to sit in. So you get to learn uh, kind of what's going on in the flight crew without having all the distractions of the camera gear. And then uh, from there, the training just goes on to getting familiarized with uh, the camera gear, uh, the uploading system, how to organize things uh, when a mission is kicked off and a mission could take any form, but usually has either specific GPS waypoints or it could be a collection of geographical points like mountain peaks or covered bridges. Um, 
those need to be organized. So you need to you need to learn how to do that, how to communicate with the crew. Uh, you know, a photographer getting a list of targets and a pilot plotting their course of those targets are two completely like tasks that might be approached in completely different ways. So you need to learn how to communicate, and you also need to learn how to communicate while you're airborne, how to coordinate, you know, how to approach the targets, uh, how to set up the shots. And then, then from there, it's really just experience and proficiency. I have a question about that. So you have a target. You're in a plane. Uh, tell us how you triangulate to know where to aim your camera if you're 1,500 feet up in the air. How does that work? Yeah, kind of the, the most standard approach is to get a series of shots on, a say, a north heading, a south heading, an east heading, a west heading. Mm-hmm. And get enough distance that uh, you can point the camera out the window and take a shot without without the wheel or the wing in the picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, so, is there any like laser technology to really pinpoint a location that you utilize, or there there certainly could be in in some parts of the country. Yeah. Um, the it would be nice to have it'd be i mean if if money was no object it'd be great to have uh both some infrared and some lidar capabilities gotcha. yeah um, that's interesting i know it's out there somewhere for sure military anyway <laughs> that's interesting interesting and then with the cadet program did you have uh, is there national programs for the cadets to actually go visit like other locations? Do they ever get out to like Kennedy Space Center or anything like that, or is it mostly just contained to the local squadron? There are um, they're called different academies, so cadets can go to different parts of the country uh, to do flight academies or search and rescue academies on the, on the ground. Um, when we do uh, we do a, a summer program, uh, our summer encampment, we have cadets come from all over the country to attend our encampment. And likewise, cadets from New Hampshire can go all across the country and attend encampments in other states. And those are typically a a week-long program where cadets learn everything from leadership to uh, getting to do a bunch of glider flights and airplane flights. Well, it sounds like a great opportunity. So we'll include in the show notes some some of the links to the squadron, and I know there's some links in there that you, that talk about uh, the cadet program, how to volunteer. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of recruiting cycle when you accept new volunteers and, and how they would go about doing that if they wanted to join? You bet. For, uh, for senior members, uh, adult members, uh, pretty much just reach out to us uh, with your interests. Uh, Answer some. We'll answer some questions about the, the program and the, you know the, the times that our meetings are at, and then you're welcome to come out and check out the squadron and come on board as as is convenient for you. Uh, as I mentioned, with the cadets right now, we've been kind of collecting groups of five or six cadets at least, and then bringing them on board in a class. Uh, as as numbers start or continue to rebound from COVID, we'll go back to our, our standard format, which would just be a a spring and a fall open house that we have, we hold an event and, uh, we, you know, kind of demonstrate a lot of stuff that we do in an area 
that everyone could come and also talk to some other members. And then uh, we'll start a, a larger class after that. So that's interesting. And do you have to be how close to geographically to um, the squadron do you have to be to volunteer? Uh, there's no limit. Um, our meetings You're to drive. <laughs> yeah, our, our our typical meetings uh, are Thursday, Thursday nights at uh, six thirty to nine o'clock. So you got to kind of schedule around that. Um, and there are people who join and just can't make the meetings, and we accommodate them as, as best we can great so stop anything else did i miss anything yep it's a good way it's a good way to give back to the community uh yeah i have a couple questions actually for the captain um that just uh stuck out to me when you were talking um you had mentioned that you were on some of the recent searches in the whites could you without going into detail could you tell us uh, maybe a little more detail about what modalities within the planes you use beyond photography? Are there uh, infrared technologies or heat sensing technology, things of that nature? Yeah, I, I wasn't fortunate enough to go on a, I shouldn't say fortunate enough. There was a, I wasn't fortunate that the search had to happen, but I, I wasn't part of the crew on, on, on those operations, but yeah. um, it's, it's really just a visual search, and if there is a beacon, we do have equipment that can pinpoint the beacon electronically, and uh, that's it. And it's you know, the a visual search is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's we 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 train quite a bit, and you go out there searching, and we'll we'll set up a scenario like, hey, there's a a, a blue aircraft missing, and you. You don't realize how many blue tarps there are laying on the ground in New Hampshire until you get something like that. That's funny. <laughs> well, on that on that note, there you talk about the beacons as well. Do you pinpoint the four hundred sixes, which would be like what I have, I think, with the rescue link? That's more of like a maritime band of. Uh, uh, what's the term? Frequency, I guess. Um, as opposed to say the garments, are you receiving or able to track different waves? Like the garments, I think are using different, like a one point. It's a it's a different. It's a gigahertz frequency range. Are you looking at all those different ranges? Or are you guys strictly looking for those personal locator beacons? Or uh, most of the physical searching that we do are for. Uh, beacons that are operating on 121.5 the frequency and those are that's the older style you know, the older style beacons have that frequency and that's Four just sixes. a uh, the 121.5 okay they're just putting out a basically an antenna putting out a frequency and uh, gotcha we have some instrumentation that will point in an approximate direction to it. So you have to do some maneuvering to try and triangulate where it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that, all that. Um, I know that Garmin has quite the, uh, the back end here to, to help out with fishing game. I know fishing game talks to their dispatch and can, you know, you know, I, I, believe they're in Texas or something like that. So fishing game can talk to Texas and Texas can get, contact to people with these new inreaches and i mean the technology is just getting wild 
Uh, so I was just curious what you guys were able to lock in on for frequencies and if there was any limit to that. Yeah, we, um, we, our communications frequencies, uh, give us pretty, pretty large net if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, so, pretty much. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we have numerous repeaters around the state and we do, uh, use a system now called ready op that you can use on your computer or your phone and key up any of these repeaters on top of mountains around New Hampshire and yeah. talk to aircraft or if anyone is on the ground with the appropriate radio, you can talk to them as well. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> One last question. <laughs> Promise. Stomp loves this stuff. Uh, forest fires, forest fires, uh, forest towers. Um, my question is, there are so many that are defunct and there's just like foundations and there's some that are just popular viewing points now. How many, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but how many at the height of the fire tower method of watching for fire fires were there and how many towers are there now that you guys utilize for uh, fire prevention and monitoring? Mm, yeah, that's a tough question. I I'd have to count. <laughs> uh, quite, I mean, quite a few. I'm sure, uh, especially in the southern right. southern part, the southern and central central part of the state. There's quite a few still. They may not all be be staffed at the same time, but sure, they are technically operational. I mean, is there like a rough like uh, mileage separation between them, or I just find it fascinating. Um, I don't know. Let me see if I can find hmm. a list here and see. <laughs> pretty neat there is like a jack you would probably be able to speak to this like the uh fire tower lists for hikers yep how long is that list there has to be it's it's got to be over 50 oh yeah well i mean they're just to get that fire tower patch i think there's only like 10 you have to do out of so it's not a very difficult list to get the patch but yeah there's quite a few i mean that you can go out very interesting huh but getting back to our our we were searching. You're talking about you know the frequencies yes. and all that. I want to put another plug in for what uh, Colonel Ninnis had said before. If you have a uh, strobe light, that'd probably be a lot easier for us to find. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Than trying to you know find a you know a, a person from 1,500 feet or 500 feet or even you know whatever. It's very hard to find people. And I recall a recent rescue where somebody had used a strobe feature on their cell phone, which was sufficient enough to catch the eye of uh, an overhead searcher. But what, what, I mean, does it beg the question, is that like uh, an 11th essential strobe light for your back? <laughs> Why not? Uh, I'll admit I don't have one. You know, <laughs> it's probably not a bad Don't idea. listen to the... Uh, Maybe for the bushwhackers yeah, out but, there. Yeah, I would definitely say that, yeah. Yeah, and it looks like the New Hampshire Fire Tower Quest is 16 okay. fire towers. Is that many? I didn't remember how many um, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but there's not... Um, you know, there's there's a lot on here that are not listed, but there's 16 for this this core list here, and then you know there's a whole bunch out there for sure that you can you can go check out. I actually wasn't even aware that there were any active fire towers in use at this point. I figured everything was aerial, but um, I just haven't yeah, looked into it. Interesting, like the, like the Cardigan one, Mount Cardigan is more just like weather monitoring, I would assume, right? Or can people actually stay up there and monitor? I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. But Stump, are you are, so are you going to volunteer for Civil Air Patrol after listening to this? Oh, man. Is there a physical requirement? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy with podcasts and search and rescue myself. <laughs> but. <clears throat> yeah, maybe. We're, we're, I'm working on them. I'm working on a commander <laughs> yeah. here. So, um I'm too busy and I live too far away. So I'm in Massachusetts. So I would have to volunteer at a Massachusetts squadron, but maybe someday. Oh, I think it's I recommend fantastic. It. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so you guys want to stick around? We're going to do a little bit of, um, we're going to do a, an overview of search and rescue data from uh, 2022 and, and sort of look at some trends. So you guys want to stick around and help us out with this? Sure. sure. Okay. Okay. I have one uh, one uh, sponsor here. So 48 Peaks Alzheimer's. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Join 450 plus hikers this summer as we hike New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own hiking adventure from a 52 with a view to a Prezi Traverse, or climb your favorite mountain. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. Visit alts.org, A-L-Z dot O-R-G, right slash 48 peaks. That's the number 48 peaks to learn more. Paint those mountains purple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They've got some lofty goals this summer. We're going to crush them. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to share my screen for you guys to follow along. So I've got a presentation for the listeners. Um, I've got a a presentation here. So um, I'm going to kind of go through this. And what this is... uh, Jack and Ben, for your your perspective, is I have collected, since 2019, I've collected every media news report of a search and rescue event um, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So Fish and Game puts out a media report. I'm basically grabbing like the the mountain, the trail, uh, the month, the date, um, whether or not the person was in a group or not in a group, the day of the week. Um, and then sort of the, I'm categorizing the type of rescue that it was and then, um, making some assumptions around negligence or not negligence based on the, um, the report we used to, I used to call the rating shame, no shame. I've softened up over the years and I'm trying to get a little bit more professional in my rating. So the shame, no shame has now moved to negligent, not negligent. So just trying to be a little more professional here, but, um, this is not all encompassing because there are search and rescues that are done that aren't published in the newspaper. There's a number of walkouts and things like that that happen that we're just not privy to. But in general, New Hampshire does a pretty good job about um, publicizing all of their search and rescue activities. So this is a good way for us to take a look at uh, volume as well as some interesting trends. And as I go through this, I'm actually going to make some recommendations to the powers that be in New Hampshire, whether it's... Um, fishing game or you know the various clubs and things like that i think there's a couple of things that they could do to tweak it tweak the messaging and maybe help lower the number of search and rescues but we'll go through this and you you guys just jump in whenever you have any questions um and i'll share this in the show notes as well so everyone can look at it i have actually published this on reddit on the white mountain reddit um 
sub subreddit so people can check it out. But um, as far as the overall media reports go uh, from 2019 to 2022, it's been pretty consistent. We've had, you know, we had like nine in the, the low to mid 90s for the last um, three years. 2022, we had 102. So it's been mostly between 95 and 102 search and rescue events. And then as far as those events, it usually, because there are events where there's multiple people that need to be rescued, um, we typically see around 110 to 120 people that are involved in search and rescue um, events. So um, it's pretty consistent stomp over the over mm-hmm. the years, and you know you see spikes. And there's some interesting things around here about how month to month we have some weirdness. So I don't think there's any way for fishing game to look at this data to say like, okay, mm-hmm. we can predict volume because it just seems like a lot of this stuff is unpredictable. But month over month, um, you know, you can kind of get averages. But one thing that is interesting is. The I have a list here of what we call the the top ten list for hotspots as well as visitors. So that's handy. This is the the that's handy. What's that? Yeah, exactly. So this sort of is over the last four years when we look at the the busiest mountains and regions for search and rescues. Franconia Ridge comes in at number one with forty eight. Um, rescues which i think is around 10 percent of the overall search and rescue events and then mount washington comes in second with 42 events and franconia ridge i basically anything that's falling waters to old bridal to the ridge is is basically i don't categorize lafayette and lincoln separately just because that region is just it's easy to cluster it together mm-hmm. um but it's franconia ridge mount washington mount chicora Monadnock, um, and then it drops off pretty significantly. But you've got Cannon, Welsh Dickey, Mount Major, Garfield, Musalaki, and Liberty, and and they all. I think the common theme here is that most of these are in the most accessible areas of the White Mountains. So you can park right on Franconia Ridge and get up there. Mount Washington's accessible. Chicora is very accessible. Monadnock, well, you know, no surprises here, but yep. well sticky. And it the nice. Hmm. I'm surprised Major isn't higher. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you're well. Yeah, and I suspect with Mount Major is there's probably a lot of um, rescues that are handled by maybe local police that aren't they don't make the paper. But you're right; I bet you there are a lot more in Mount Major that we don't see. The Front Woods. Um, yeah, but the nice thing about this is when you look at these hot spots, almost all of them are covered by the Trailhead Steward program. Yeah. So um, there are Trailhead Stewards, you know, set up at Franconia and Mount Washington and Mount Chicora. Um, Monadnock has its own um, fishing game hot down below, but for the most part, they get it pretty well covered. And then this is always an interesting sort of debate is there's this sort of idea that Massachusetts people come up to New Hampshire and need to be rescued more frequently. That is true, but it's pretty close. It's almost 50-50 between Mass and New Hampshire. Hmm. So That's surprising. Look at those. I think it's 100. Doing something right, huh? Look at the that? Vermonters. They must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, the Vermonters. I mean, the, the the right thing they're doing is they're sticking with their own state. They're not <laughs> dealing with the crowds, I bet. <laughs> so um, this next one here, and I know this is be a little bit small for you guys to follow along in the um, in the sheer window here, 
but um, this is basically a month-to-month overview of when search and rescues happen. So not too surprising, like July and August tend to be the busiest months, but surprisingly, you know, October during foliage season is pretty busy. But the thing that stands out to me is that every year we have an anomaly with a month that has a big spike above its average. So, for example, if you look at um, November of um, 2019, oh no, I'm sorry, May of 2019, you will see this big spike here where, um, you know, we had 13 rescues where the previous years we had like four in 2020, which is probably due to COVID, but then even um, in May in 2021 was pretty low. And then we had a big spike in 2020, which was in November. Um, And then in 2021, this is probably the most interesting one. We had a huge spike of search and rescue events in January. And then in 2022, we saw August blew up and then um, also September. So it's very tough to predict the volume, but you can sort of work to the averages and kind of know that, you know, May is when things are going to start picking up. And then June and July will be steady, but not high volume. And then August, September, um, and October will be busy. Interesting. I wonder if it uh, depends upon weather trends too. Mm. I, I seem to recall last year was a pretty warm and rainy and, yeah. you know, just sort of a, an odd year for winter. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and sometimes these numbers can be skewed as well. If you have one rescue that might have, you know, six or seven people involved in it, then it can it can skew the numbers a little bit too. Because this is just based on the number of people rescued. Yeah, gotcha. um, this next one here is category. So again, I know that this is hard for you guys to see, and it's a little bit small on our, our screen. But um, on the left hand side is the biggest volume of. Um, search and rescue categories, which is the lower leg injury. So you can see, um, you know, we're in the low 40s every year, and then this year spiked up to 54. The next most common category is lost, uh, people lost because of um, headlamp or map, or they're just generally panicking. And the interesting thing with this data here is you can see in 2022, we saw a significant drop over the average when it comes to headlamp calls. And we saw a significant increase in lower leg injuries. So I don't know if um, the headlamp calls were just due to more education or if it was due to trailhead stewards making sure that people um, had headlamps or if there was other things going on here. But you can sort of see the headlamp issues have dissipated a little bit in 2022, whereas the lower leg injuries have increased. So... Mm-hmm. I think whatever they've done to sort of mitigate the headlamp piece of it has worked. I have a theory, Stomp, and Jack and, and Ben, maybe you you can verify this or get this thoughts, but I have a theory that what may be happening is that the technology with um, 911 GPS positioning may be such that the calls that they're getting for lost headlamp, um, maybe they are assessing the weather conditions getting the GPS information and then telling people to stay out overnight until it gets light as long as they're identifying they're on the trail. Maybe, maybe they're just getting more comfortable doing that if they get the GPS coordinates on a 911 could call. Be. I don't know. Yeah, it could yeah. be. 
I yeah. definitely know there's been a boom in the no response calls where somebody calls in and they just guide them off trail or back onto trail, I mean, um, or get them to a safe location and say, okay, we'll see you in the morning. There's definitely been a blow up in that number. Yep. Yeah. So again, lower leg injuries is the most common category. Lost headlamp map panic is the next one. We've got miscellaneous injuries, which is basically anything that's not a lower leg injury. If it's a knee or a head or an elbow or whatever, um, then in all these categories, besides the the headlamp and the lower leg injury, they're all pretty low and pretty consistent. But um, miscellaneous injury, reckless behavior, we've seen a drop in the number of reckless uh, behavior search and rescues this year. Fatigue, um, fatalities, and then medical issues. You know, they're all pretty much on the average of like around 10 per year. So those are all the categories. Um, like I said, the thing that stands out to me is big increase in lower leg injuries this year, big decrease in headlamp issues. So whatever is happening with the headlamp situation seems to be helping out, but we seem to be getting worse with slip and falls. Hmm. Um, when it comes to age range here, this is... Um, you know, let me put this in slideshow. Maybe this will help you guys see it a oh, little yeah. bit better. Yeah, there we go. Um, and I can I can just wing my notes here, but you can see sort of lower um, the the younger people tend to have a much bigger issue with search and rescue. I think stomp. We talked about this a couple of times around the young people that got into trouble the last couple of months, a couple of fatalities. Like I don't know how we get the message out to young people around safety, but clearly these numbers show that. You know, if you're 20 to 29 or, or a younger person than that, like your risk of being involved in a search and rescue is much higher. Yeah. Well, it's an open question. Yeah. Interestingly, the there's a one anomaly here that I, I called out, which is, well, there's a couple of anomalies. In 2021, we saw a big spike in 60 to 69-year-olds needing search and rescues. Um and then we've also seen for the last two years, 70 plus, we've seen a lot of search and rescues over the last two years with them. We we had six, we had five in 2019, one in 2020. And then the last two years, we have 19 search and rescues involving 70 or older, 70 year old or older. <laughs> I've noticed that trend myself. So the old yeah, people yeah. are misbehaving. Absolutely. Yeah. Just anecdotally, I've seen it. Yep. Yep. And then um, as far as gender and age range goes, you can see here it's pretty even across the genders. Um, the only sort of interesting trend here is when you get up into the like, so basically the number of search and rescues, there's a little bit of a, it's pretty even between the under 29 and younger set, even actually under 39 um, when you get to 40-year-old, in the 40-year-old range, um, females are a little bit more likely for search and rescues. Then it evens out again when they get into the 50s. When you get into the 60s, there's a significant, almost a 3x increase in the likely, or a 2x increase in the likelihood of um, search and rescue calls. So those 19 females involved in search and rescues over the last four years compared to 43 um, in the 60 to 69 year old bracket. I have a theory about this one stop. You can tell me what you think, Jack and Ben. I think that um, men tend to overestimate their physical capability for a longer period of time. I think women are much yep. more realistic about their their um, 
ability. And I think there's a lot of old dudes that aren't able to give it up and they get out there and they're like, I, I got an That's issue. too funny. <laughs> that sounds likely. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, the next one here is um, just a rating between negligent versus no neg not negligent. You can see the blue here are the negligent calls um, over the last four years. So you can see um, no age group is that bad when it comes to negligence, except for the 20-something-year-olds definitely more likely to be in a situation where they've got – and negligence generally I rank them by – um, if they didn't have a headlamp or they did something clearly reckless, uh, being somewhere they weren't supposed to be, or fishing game calls it out in their um, report saying that the pre the people were grossly not prepared. So, but you can see here, a very in most cases, it's just sort of things happen and, and it is what it is. But in the twenty somethings, they do tend to have have some issues with negligence. And and just so that everyone's aware. Anytime there's a fatality, I take that out of the negligence rating. So those are not involved in this. This is only people that um, were involved in non-fatal. Um, and then this is just year over year. You can see, um, I think the reason why you'll see in 2019, 2020, you can see the negligent calls have gone down significantly. And I think that that's primarily due to the sharp decrease in headlamp calls. You know, typically I would say, you know, if you didn't have a headlamp and you got caught out in dark, that's on you. Um, I guess you could argue that, like, look, I had a headlamp, but the battery or something broke. But still, you know, I think that we've seen a big decrease in the last, um, you know, two years in the number of sort of grossly neglig negligent uh, cases. Nice work. Um, and, Yeah. And then seasonally, you can see, basically, I've got a slide here that just goes from fall, spring, summer, and winter. Summer, by far, has the most search and rescue events. Fall and spring are pretty much even. And then winter has around 20 to 25 uh, search and rescue events over the last four years. Uh, day of the week. So this is another one that sort of breaks it down. No surprises here. Saturday and Sunday are the busiest um, Monday is the busiest weekday, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, oh, actually Friday is the slowest with the least amount of search and rescue calls, and then um, Thursday is a little heavier, but generally Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday are the slowest days for search and rescue, so if you don't want to get involved in a call, go out on those three days. <laughs> yeah, copy that. So, yeah, and interestingly... Tuesday on Mount Washington is, there's never been a search and rescue call in the last four years on a Tuesday on Mount Washington. So if you're going to hike in the summertime on Mount Washington, go on a Tuesday. So you, your odds huh. will be in your favor. Very strange. So, um, and I think Fridays are very common rescue days for Franconia Ridge for some reason. I don't know why. Really? You saw that data? Yeah. Yeah, I have that data broken down. Like I, I don't have it in these slides, but I have data that shows for each mountain, what the what the most what the volume is per day. I mean, you just run gotcha. it as a pivot table. Interesting. Um, this is an interesting one here. So um, I started collecting in 2021 and 2022. There was a lot of discussion on different message boards around whether or not um, you were more likely to get in trouble as a solo hiker. So you hear this all the time, like, hey, you shouldn't hike solo because you're more likely to get um, get in trouble and get in a rescue or whatever. 
it's actually about um, 3x times more likely that in, when you're in a group, you're going to need a rescue. So 160 um, search and rescue calls with people that were in a group, which means they were with one or more people. And then there were 49 events that were uh, with solo hikers. Huh. So, I wonder how many solo hikers self-rescued. Generally, you're usually more experienced when you go solo. I mean, I'm not going to say that's 100% true, but you know, maybe they self-rescued. Well, here's more. another one. How about bushwhackers yeah. versus yeah. on-trail people? I mean, you rarely hear about a bushwhacker. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty rare that you hear about a bushwhack. It's pretty rare that you hear about an AT through hiker. Um, huh. But you know, occasionally you will you will hear one, but not too often. And then this is the breakdown with fatalities. I know the, this is four slides here, but essentially, um, I've got four ways to look at this. Like, were they in a group or were they solo? <clears throat> this is where it gets interesting. Is that yes. In general, you're more likely to be in a search and rescue when you're in a group. When it comes to the fatalities, um, I think there was nine fatalities over the last um, four years where I actually only collected 2021 and 2022. I didn't do 2019 to 2020, but um, nine of the fatalities were solo hikers, and then I think six or seven were in a group. So um, I think that when things get really bad and you're solo – that's that's where it can be an issue for sure and then just seasonally it's pretty much proportional to what you see for search and rescue events over season age range um it's it's the 50 to 50 to 59 and 60 to 69 year old um age range that that is the most likely to experience a fatality and then from a gender perspective, significantly um, male over female, I think 25 um, or, or yeah, 25 male um, fatalities on the trail for the last four years. And there's actually four female fatalities. That doesn't surprise me. I think in most, the, most things you'll, you'll see it, you know, that kind of uh, proportion. Have you ever heard a woman say, hold my beer? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And I also think, and, and this is something that I've been thinking about a little bit, Jack, is I don't know how many of these have been, you know, heart attacks. Like there's definitely a number yep. of them that are hypothermia and, and, and hiking related, but there's also a fear number that are medical yeah. issues, heart attacks, things like that. I think that there's something to be said, especially if you're a solo hiker. Um, there's a service that I will link to in the show notes, but I think preventative cardiology is something that everybody, once you get to be 50 years old, I think going to get your your carotid artery ultrasound done and some of that preventative maintenance, there's a, that's, I forget what it's called. I think it's Lifeline Cardiology Scan. These these places where you can go for $180 to get, you know, your, your uh, artery scanned through ultrasound and they'll give you an assessment on the, the plaque buildup inside your arteries. I think that's worth it for people to do on a, you know, every two, three years, aside from your normal stress test that you'll be doing, just on the off chance that they catch something. I mean, you don't want to be out there hiking and, and find out that you've got, you know, a blocked artery that's 99%. Like, it's game over if you're by yourself. So I think preventative cardiology is something that if you're going to be hiking solo or even hiking in a group, if you're like a 50 years or older men, then you should be thinking about this preventative cardiology. Yeah. I had a, a, an episode with a friend of mine a number of years ago 
where we were going to hike in the winter and it was one of the road closures. We stopped walking down the road and, you know, he's kind of like holding onto his chest. He's like, just give me a minute. Give me a minute. This, it comes and goes. After three times I said, that's it. We're going back to the car. You know, you're going to go home and tomorrow you're going to the doctor. And to come to find out he had uh, what they call a widow maker. Yeah. Like 90 blockage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we were in a spot where there was no settlement service, no nothing. You know, if he had collapsed on the trail, I would have had to left, leave him there to go find a cell service. And uh, so, yeah, I, I fully agree with what you said about the preventative you know, cardiac care. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. My father, the same thing. He went in for a routine stress test, and he was 99% blocked. They had him in the, on the surgery table like six hours wow. later. So, yeah. So it's, um, it's nothing to be said. But um, a couple of recommendations that I have here, again, that, that preventative cardiology work, I definitely recommend that. I think there's an opportunity, I go back to this um, lower leg injury thing. I think that there's an opportunity for uh, fishing game or anybody that's in a position of power to start updating the message around. I think that we need to get splints as a um, as a 10 essential. I think that um, there's an opportunity there with the volume of lower leg injuries that you see out in the trail educating people on the use of splints and getting them sort of into the mindset to say like, if I get a lower leg injury, I'm going to try to splint this myself and see if I can power my way out of there. You know, obviously if you, if, if you've got a broken ankle or something, you got to call for a search and rescue. It's don't hesitate, but I do think that there's an opportunity here, whether it's through like billboards or um, the organizations that push out the 10 essentials. I think publicizing field splints as a as an option you should be carrying is is something that they should seriously consider because it's the biggest volume of rescues and i think that there's a you know of those 50 plus um lower leg injuries that happened this year i got to imagine there's a percentage of them that could have been self-rescue if people had a field splint available to them i don't carry a field splint but i do carry um uh would say the, the elastic stuff you can wrap around an injury. Yeah, like I forget what it's <laughs> yeah. called too. But it's late in the, uh, the evening right now, and my brain's not working the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I carry that. But I think the splint idea is a, a really good idea. Hey, have you ever considered contacting Fishing Game, like the Colonel, and just saying, "Hey, I have some neat data. Be cool to bounce their numbers off of yours because these numbers are pretty uh, intense." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um. You maybe should. I'll, maybe I will do that. I'll, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll send it over to them. But, you know, there's a couple of other things that I haven't pulled. One of which that I, I do need to get to at some point. It's just, I don't have time is, um, I'd like to start collecting the, the time that the, the call came in and the time that, uh, the person made it to the trailhead. Cause I think that data is in there, um, just to get a sense of what, you know, what the typical turnaround time is. A couple of other things I have collected is, was there a helicopter involved or not? I started doing that this year. There was like 17 events that involved the helicopter. Um, I've started to take notes on whether or not people had a hike safe card. I think there was like four events last year where people had a hike safe card. Um, Do you track weather conditions? Nothing on uh, weather conditions. That would be interesting to see whether there was visibility or not. But the other thing that I did capture was whether or not there was an outside agency that assisted with a rescue. So there's there's like two or three examples of, matter of fact, there's I think three examples of the COG stepping in and helping out with a rescue. There's probably like six or seven examples of AMC crew huts or hut crews mm-hmm. stepping in to help out with with rescues as well. So there's a lot go, that goes well, the on. Solo, 
solo guys when they're going for the classes oh, yeah. they've been called yeah i didn't even i didn't even capture that but you're right and it's you know the when the solo classes happen so do the search and rescue calls it seems like yeah. so but there's you know there's a lot of data in here and then have you ever thought of going on, on like on the road and presenting this to you know like i know a lot of the search and rescue groups will will do presentations but maybe you could hook up with some of them and just kind of share that data with the public. I mean, this is good yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm always open to talking to anybody, but I'll, I'm going to share this in the show notes. And then, um, you know, the last couple of slides I have here are just unresolved criminal cases. So we've talked about a lot of these. You know, Sherry Roth from 1977, there was a, um, I think she was strangled to death in uh, Sawyer Brook Trail. Pamela Webb was... Um, you know, somebody that had been found murdered in 1989, Louis Chaput, well-known case that was in the vicinity of Glen Ellis Falls. Patrick McCarthy was a young boy that um, died suspiciously on Whaleback Mountain and then Mara Murray we've talked about before. And, you know, there's a number of missing people that have also never been found. Kevin Race um, was a gentleman from Maine that disappeared mysteriously Um gentleman was scheduled to go to court on on felony embezzlement charges wrote a note saying he was going to mount washington to end his life but people seem to think that he may have just um moved to the caribbean stefan pori sue we've talked about him before michael miller missing on franconia ridge from 1983 we've talked about him and then a couple of like uh, arrests noteworthy arrests of uh, different people so interesting stuff here I'll, I'll share it with the listeners and you know it's it's good to sort of look through this data maybe someone will pick something off that i didn't see but i do think that the biggest opportunity out of this is to just remind people um preventative cardiac um steps that you can take and then start thinking about that splint and then whatever's being done to limit the headlamp stuff keep it up because it's working hmm. very yeah. good nice work yeah, and I think, Stomp, we've run out of time, so we're going to have to push the recent search and rescue news to the next episode. Yeah, actually, let's just do the let's just do one because it sort of ties in with the imagery and uh, searching from above. And it's just uh, freezing hikers in Zion found by thermal imagery. So we'll just give you the link so you can check it out. It's really neat because it actually shows you the actual video that the people up above were seeing as they found these hikers that were trapped in Zion. Uh, so it's really cool. So definitely check that out in the show notes. And uh, yeah, it, other than that, everything else is just snowmobile crashes into trees, rocks, and, you know, throttling when you shouldn't be throttling. So nothing, you're not missing anything. There haven't really been in, any calls. Excellent. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. All right. Thanks, thank guys. You. Thank you. Have a good night. Oh, you bet. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, 
get out there and crush some mega heats. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 